Well, good morning. I know that your hearts are prepared to worship, having sung about guacamole. And uh, just kidding, it's all part of worship, isn't it? And, and the guy who is coming, Randall Goodgame, is amazing, just like David Calvert is amazing to sing that song, like Keisha said. Um, we are enormously blessed to have him with us. Invite everybody that you possibly can to come to VBS and then to come for that Friday night in particular. Uh, this past weekend, uh, the Lees and the Tallies were up in the mountains to uh, witness a wedding. Greg Oakley's son was married to one of my very best friends I've ever had, Roger Russell, uh, who used to be at the camp and his daughter, actually, uh, Brooks didn't get married to Roger. He got married to <laughs> Roger's daughter, Ashley. Uh, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I'm forward thinking, not that forward. Uh, I participated in the, in the service, but um, we, Roger is children's minister at a church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and they minister to several hundred kids on three different campuses. And he said, the Lord has blessed our ministry with 240 volunteers. And we still need 150 people. It's just the way it always is. Wouldn't it be awesome if we could break the mold? Uh, what is this, Keisha? Your second time this year sitting in the service? And I don't know that you'll be here the whole time. You're liable to be in and out. We need to, get, we need to make it our goal to get Keisha Colbert in the service more. She needs all the help she can get, you know, that family of hers. I mean, her godly husband, but her kids, it's her kids that are out of control, you know. So anyway, I better quit while I'm behind. I, we left last yesterday about 4.30, wanted to get home in plenty good time, went to Michael's on the way home in Fosco, headed towards Boone, and it hit me. I think I may have left my computer at the camp. And I said it just like that, too. Uh, sure enough, had to go back to the camp, and we got home late last night. I called Michael. I said, guess where I am? And I told him close to camp. He said, did you go the wrong way? <laughs> and again, I said, I'm senile, just not that senile. I mean, I was senile enough to leave my computer. But at any rate, if any there are any mistakes this morning, that is my absolute uh, best excuse. After the service, if you weren't here earlier... Youth, meet in the youth room for bowling and pizza this afternoon. It's going to be a fun time. So youth, any parents, if you haven't signed release forms, go back there and do that. You'll be asked for your um, check-in account number. That'll make some more sense after the message today on giving. Hey, the next few weeks is one of those opportunities that a pastor just relishes when you get to preach on things like giving and then the second coming where everybody has is in so much agreement and and so it's just going to be a blast these next this June is going to be a a real fun time for me anyway and I'll start this morning by ask you asking you what makes you happy now please just Stop being so spiritual. I know you're in church and the pastor just, what makes you happy so you're thinking all of these spiritual things? Really though, if this were Monday afternoon or Friday morning and you're not thinking about this at all, what is it that would make you happy at those times? Probably more of what you already have. I mean, look, we all know how difficult it is to save 
when our neighbors keep buying things that we can't afford. It's difficult. It makes it difficult, doesn't it? It's like, oh man, now I've got to... So deep down, what do you think would make you happy? Is it money? Is it a spouse? Is it children? A bigger home in a better neighborhood? A promotion at work? Is it someone at the office or in your neighborhood that you wish would just go away? Would that make you happy? If, if that would come to pass, more education, more power, more or the more spiritually sounding quest for influence. And hey, look, if people just thought more highly of me, I would use it for good. The thing about studying the Gospels as we currently are studying the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus exposes our hypocrisy, our misguided thoughts about God, and our lack of faith. Today we're in the last part of chapter 12 of Mark's gospel, where Jesus begins to wrap up his final confrontations with the religious leaders. And these conflicts, especially the ones right at the very end, just intensify the hatred that the the leaders have for Jesus and and their intention to kill him. It just goes through the roof, their desire to get him off the scene. And after this final confrontation with the leaders, Jesus turns his attention to his disciples and begins to prepare for the cross. And he is encouraging a strong, heartfelt response to the king. We're going to be talking about that and about his return, uh, the study of which we will begin next week. Today's text is Mark 12 38 through 44. I will be reading from the English Standard Version. If you would please stand as we read Scripture together. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who were contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Let's pray. Father, uh, when we read this passage from such a distance, a distance of years, a a distance of, of culture and circumstances, it's hard to get our minds around all that you are saying to us in these two different trains of thought. And yet they, like all the ones before in this gospel, are connected as Jesus moves inexorably toward the cross. 
And so may the cross loom large in our hearts and our minds. Even as we absorb. These final words. Of Jesus or words in the final days that he had before his crucifixion. Open our hearts and fill them. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks and be seated. If you were to make a list of the greatest sins of the church, what would make your list? I'm sure there are some that would be very glaring, like gossip, like a lack of social justice, sexual immorality, hypocrisy, irreverence. And so on. We just go right down the list and say, this is a problem, this is a problem, this is a problem. So what sins did Jesus condemn? Well, I mean, all of those for sure. But no doubt his harshest words were reserved for the religious leaders. Why? Certainly because of their hypocrisy. That would be easy to say they were definitely Hypocritical, and he called them out as hypocrites over and over. You hypocrites, you hypocrites. But his finger was really on the root of their problem, self-righteousness. The Pharisees, the scribes, all of those who were in leadership, the priests, sought to justify their position and their standing before men, which in turn thought that it gave them standing before God. The religious leaders refused to acknowledge Jesus as king because then that would mean that they were no longer kings. If he's the head man, I'm not. Jesus cut to the core of the issue when he told them in Luke 16 that the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all of these things and he said to them, you are those who justified yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. That doesn't mean that everything that we think is a great thing on earth is a horrible thing. But when we are seeking praise and glory and honor for ourselves, it's an abomination before the Lord. So in justifying themselves before men, they assumed that they were justifying themselves before God. And we all make that mistake, don't we? I mean, when, when the money is good, when life is good, we're held in high esteem by others, we tend to think it's because we are good. And God <clears throat> thinks we're good and loves us, of course, if we are good. So it's all interconnected. I'm doing well. God must really be impressed with me. When the reverse is true in our lives... Financial difficulties were looked down upon by others. There's the inability to do nearly as much for God as we would like to do. And part of it is we're just working our fingers to the bone to keep bread on the table, to keep a roof over our heads. Some people, a lot of people have life that way, don't they? We work ridiculously long hours, most of us in this room, because we get to. Some people do because they have to. They have a whole lot less than we do. And the temptation when all of those things are happening, when we're sick, when, it, when we just can't shake the sickness, when, when people are talking badly about us, well, then God must not love us as much as he does others. 
And then we're tempted to think, if I can just learn the lesson God wants me to learn, then it's going to be all right. Then it'll be smooth sailing again because God will love me again. And The scribes, the teachers of the law, were all about appearances. Jesus said they liked to wear particular clothing to distinguish them as teachers. But what the clothing really did was to set them apart from others. It's not that it's like, oh yeah, he's a teacher. It's like, oh yeah, he's a teacher. Jesus' authority wasn't in his clothes. It was in his teaching. The scribes exalted themselves among the people with the long flowing robes they had. And because, think about this, because they wore these robes, and you can imagine them walking like this, you know, in the temple, they exalted themselves in the face of God, in the presence of the Lord. These leaders expected deference to be given to them in the marketplace. Good morning, Rabbi Joseph. We are so blessed to have you at our synagogue. Much of the respect, no doubt, was genuine, but suppose you didn't show proper deference to Rabbi Joseph in the marketplace. Even though you run into him a lot, you just don't say anything to him. Rabbi Joseph notices notices your insolence, your lack of respect for this man of God that he is. Wouldn't be necessarily good for your social standing. Or for your chances of meaningful employment in the area. Religious leaders loved the important seats in religious places. Jesus talked a lot about don't seek the seat of honor. Let someone put you in that place. Don't go trying to get in that place yourself. Why? Well, there are multiple reasons that we can speculate. I mean, first, the kind of glory that such leaders are desiring by sitting in the place of honor is reserved only for God. Furthermore, constantly taking a seat of honor can only lead to pride. If you're looking for that place, in addition to exalting self, an expectation of exalted status by definition means that others are devalued, debased in some way. I mean, the seat of honor only means something to me if there are enough of you lesser people out there to take other seats. The desire for honor amongst these religious leaders marked a more heinous desire for wealth that was obtained at the expense of the poor. We're not exactly sure what Jesus means by that, but... But we've seen a little bit of that in our day, haven't we? Ministers exploiting the poor for their own gain, for their own benefit. It's not surprising that the exploitation was wrapped in a cloak of spirituality, of of long and pretentious prayers. God is just not interested in a show of outward spirituality, but rather in a heart, a genuine heart that responds to its creator, its redeemer, its king. It's it's not that the good works that the Pharisees were practicing were evil. 
It's just that the king of self was on the throne of the heart. And all was being done to exalt self. Even the acts that appeared to be deeply spiritual and sacrificial. (coughs) Wow, did you see Deacon Scott? That guy, it's amazing. He gives so much. He does so much. And, and there are people that we can say that about. And I say with great gratitude in my heart. The problem is Scott is wrestling with that praise. Because it, you always do when people praise you and say, you are the bomb. Actually, they don't say it that way. They say, you're the bomb. You know. But when they say that, you're thinking, well, well. Or, that's right, you better, you better watch yourself, too. Mark records only a small portion. A small portion of Jesus' rebuke of the religious leaders for their hypocrisy. The 23rd chapter of Matthew gives a much more detailed description of Jesus' condemnation of the Jewish leaders. He calls them everything in the book, snakes, you're sorry, low down, whitewashed tombs, you're on and on he went. If there had been any doubt that the leaders would seek to kill Jesus, there was none now. And after a blistering rebuke of the self-righteous religious leaders, Jesus turned his focus to instructing the disciples on really important matters. But before we go there to this next section, let me just, just say this. It's a really difficult, it's a really difficult thing. There's a lot said in Scripture about honoring the people that God has put in leadership, not by any means that those are God, that they have any special connection with the Lord. It's just the place that God has given them. And we are to honor them in the same way that we're to honor every, all people who are over us, the same way that we're to honor police, w- policemen when they're doing their jobs. Uh, the, the government, the, the head of the, uh, of the company. And we've reached this awful day in our our society where everybody is against everything. Anybody in leadership is stupid. They're crazy until they finally get in leadership, you know, and then they want it to be just that way. So, but there's a lot in Scripture that says being careful to not speak evil or speak ill of those who are leaders. Jesus could do this because he's God and he put his finger on their heart. At the same time, one of the great protections about elder rule Okay, I know you go. For, I know it's easy to go from saying, "Oh, that that man thinks he's king," or to saying, "Oh, those guys just think they're king of the hill, and nobody can say anything to them." No, no. One of the great protections of elder rule is that nobody gets the big head. You're not allowed to. Just not allowed to. Anybody starts to get the big head, the others say, "I wouldn't do that." You know, you're getting fair warning. So. <clears throat> Keep this always, and, and, and this condemnation of the leaders that Jesus leveled on these guys goes for any of us who seek to justify ourselves before men instead of justifying ourselves before God. And the only way, we, we can't. God justifies the ungodly. That's the only justification that there is. 
that he is the one who says, you are worthy to be called by my son. And it's through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Because he lived the life you were incapable of living. And he died a death that you should have died. But he did it in your place. And when you acknowledge your sin before me. And you call out to Jesus to save you. Then automatically you're justified before God. And when we come. When we are hanging by a thread. And and in any second we're going to fall into the abyss. And he snatches us out. We've got no cause to boast. Well. Moving on. Jesus' presence in the temple began with him driving out buyers and sellers for the animal sacrifices. And it ended with his commendation for a widow who sacrificed everything that she had. Who gave all that she had to the Lord. In verse 41, we're told that Jesus positioned himself so that he could see people who were putting offerings into what amounted to offering baskets. They were these 13 brass trumpet-shaped containers. They, it was like the mouth at the top was small, and then it went down, and they're brass, and, and all of the offerings were with coins. So Jesus sets up, and, and, and he's watching this, and he calls his disciples over, him, over with him to watch with him. Now, <clears throat> you can imagine as these coins, these copper coins, and all coins of different metals are are being dropped into these brass containers. There's a lot of clanging going on. And if you're a wealthy person, you've got heavier coins that are going to make more noise. If you're a poor person, you've got small, light coins. Jesus tells us that, that the Pharisees made a show whenever they would give. I mean, some have gone so far as to say, I don't know that I could confirm this, but it was something like this, that these Pharisees would have people go before him and blow a trumpet and say, Pharisee, so-and-so is going to make a donation to the poor, you know, and it would just make this great, at the very least, Jesus accused them of doing that type of thing. You may as well be blowing trumpets for everyone to watch what you're doing. So Jesus pointed to his disciples the obvious. Rich people were giving a lot of money. He also pointed to a poor widow who gave very little. (coughs) Excuse me. She gave two copper coins that amounted pretty much to a penny. They're given $1,000, and everybody knows that she's given a penny. (coughs) And a penny is hardly coin. To purchase the oil to keep the temple lamps burning. So. Jesus says it's more than all the others. It was more because she gave all that she had. The widows believed. Or the widow believed something that the believers just didn't fully. Grasp or acknowledge or believe. Everything that we have. Everything that we have comes from God. And everything that we have belongs to him. Look, don't think about, okay, I'm going to give this amount to God and then I keep the rest, whatever that amount is. 
It all belongs to God. It came from him. It belongs to him. Jesus said that she gave all that she had to live on. All. Have we heard that word lately? We heard it a few weeks ago when David was sharing the great commandment that Jesus shared. We're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. And this woman gave more than all the others because she gave all. So clearly this woman trusted God to take care of her needs. It was on full display. Her, Her faith was on full display. Even if you had to look below the surface to find it. Jesus had already exposed what was just under the surface of the religious leaders. He said, your your whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. You look good on the outside, but there's only death and decay inside. Everything about the religious leaders said spiritual, godly, fully dedicated to God. But they served themselves, not the one who gave them the blessings that they enjoyed. Jesus had the right to commend or command men and women to give with all their hearts. And he had the right to commend this woman for giving her all. First, because he was God, the creator. The redeemer, the provider. For all of those that he debated and all of those that he taught. But also he had the right to command us to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts. And to commend this woman for giving all. Because in just a few short hours he was going to give everything. Not only die in a horrible death by crucifixion. But taking our sins upon himself. As God poured out his righteous wrath on Jesus. So that we might receive the free gift of God. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 give us the most comprehensive teaching on giving in all of the New Testament. Our generous gifts to God are tied to the gift of Jesus to us. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you by his poverty might become rich. Paul was writing to the Corinthians and he was encouraging them to make good on a pledge that they had made to give to the poor saints in the Jerusalem church. There were some very wealthy believers in Corinth, but it's, very, it's quite interesting. Paul didn't chide him. Now, you know, in the book of 1 Corinthians, he comes down pretty hard on a lot of the behavioral patterns of the people in that church, the saints in that church. But in In 2 Corinthians, he is just encouraging them to give, and he's doing so based on an example of the Macedonians. Look at what he says in in, in 2 Corinthians 8. In fact, turn over there if you would. I know it's on the screen, but I want you to look at this in, in your Bible. 2 Corinthians 8, beginning with verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, probably those in Philippi. 
For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now just look at these combinations of words here. Severe test of affliction, abundance of joy. That doesn't, they don't usually go together, do they? Their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Those don't go together. And yet, look at what God is saying about them. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Listen, I do want to say this on behalf of the elders. We cannot take any more requests for more giving. You just all the time saying, we just wish we had two or three offerings in the service. And aren't there some other funds? That's exactly what was happening here. These guys were begging Paul. Paul was saying, look, 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 I understand your situation. There are others in a better position to give. They said, please, please receive this from us. We want to participate. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. That's always the pattern for giving. God blesses. His grace is evident in our lives. And regardless of what we have, we long to participate and we give ourselves first to the Lord and then we give of our resources. Here is a true statement that is affirmed over and over in the New Testament. If you have given yourself to Jesus, you will give to the Lord's work from your financial resources. It's going to happen. doesn't mean that it's always going to be easy, but it will be natural. Look, breathing is is difficult sometimes, right? (laughs) But it's natural. And so will giving be as we give ourselves first to the Lord on the basis of what he's given to us. So, what can we draw about our call and commitment to give? First, New Testament giving is always to be practiced as a response to God's grace in Jesus. One of the chief purposes of the law is to reveal our sin to us. As Paul says in Romans 7, nothing wrong with the law. It's not a trouble. There's not a problem with the law. The problem with us, with us, the letter of the law kills because it condemns us as the sinful, rebellious men and women and boys and girls that we are, incapable of impressing God by what we do. We're not saved. By the works of the law, we're not saved by our good works, by our giving, by our church membership. Those things are not going to save us, but rather we are saved by grace. Through faith in the completed work of Christ who died as a satisfactory substitute for our sin. Those who believe that Jesus died for them by giving, extending his grace to us are made children of God and long to respond to God's goodness by giving of our resources. When we give generously and joyfully, we do so as a response fit for a king, not out of duty, nor in an attempt to make 
God love us or accept us. Second, we are called to give regardless of our financial status. Now, does that sound contradictory? I mean, in the first point, you say giving is always in a response to, to God's grace to us. And now we're saying, but it's a calling. We're called to give regardless of our financial status. The two givers in the New Testament who are commended the most highly in all of the New Testament, the widow and, and the Macedonians that we've just read about, were dirt poor. And there's no indication that their financial status changed when they gave nothing. Don't you think if the, if the prosperity gospel were true, we'd follow the lives of these people? Don't you think we'd hear more about how this widow gave everything that she had and, and all of a sudden the next week she came into this financial treasure somehow someone gave her some money or the same thing to the Corinthians and I mean about the Macedonians wouldn't Paul say and you know what happened to those Macedonians who gave out of their poverty no longer are they poor God but we don't hear that because it's not about giving in order that we receive it's about giving because we have received so we're called to respond to God's grace And we will always respond in gratitude with our finances if our response is genuine at all. Our financial state should have nothing to do with our decision to give. Our spiritual state will determine that. That's just the way it is. We cannot be touched by God's grace and then live the way that we did before. And to just think it's all about me, 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 me. Even if we gave 10% before we, we, we were saved and touched by the Lord's grace. Now we do so out of a response of love. His love for us. Not in an attempt to win his love. Third, God cares far more about our hearts than the amount we give. How could it possibly be that this woman who gave two copper coins could give more than the wealthy men and women who were clanging their money into the treasure troves. Because God doesn't keep the books in the same way that we keep the books. If you can give a very small amount on a monthly basis because you don't make much, not because your money is tied up in other places, but because you don't make much. Don't you worry about that. Your gift, God takes your gift and multiplies them in ways we could never even think about. While it's true that God cares more about our hearts than the amount he, amounts that we give, it's also true that the amount we give may very well reveal something about our hearts. The next one. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry about that. If I go off script, it's really miserably difficult for those people to follow me. I so seldom go off script. (laughs) Jesus talked a good bit more about money than you can possibly imagine. And when I talk about 
the two givers who are commended the most in the New Testament, there's a whole lot more in the New Testament about giving than, there, than I have talked about this morning. Uh, even the parable about the landowner and the tenants right at the very beginning of, of Mark 12 is about money at one level. Jesus said, as you saw this morning, where their treasure, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Or we could say it backwards and say, whatever we treasure, that's where our money is going to go. That's where our heart is going to be. Remember the question at the beginning of the message, what makes you happy? And I know it's more of what we already have. We, we, look, we, you, you have a child, you want more children. You, you have one grandchild, you want more. There's a place where that stops. You know, I can, you, know, you can say, hey, <laughs> we got birthdays. You can't imagine how many birthdays we have. Thank God for Allison because I would not be getting those birthdays. Look, I know we're not bound to percentages in the New Testament. But my goodness. ought to be a starting point. How can you possibly, how can you hang on to your money like it's mine and I just can't do this if you claim the blood of Christ Christ for your salvation? How is it possible? Look, I don't talk much about money. I really don't. But when we talk about it, let's be honest about it. 10% ought to be a starting point. It's unlikely that it will be, though, when our hearts are going after other treasures. Let the love and grace of God. And, and again, now, I doubt seriously Paul stomped his foot like I just did when he was writing Second Corinthians 8. It's a challenge. It's a gracious challenge, but it's very pointed. Look at what these guys are doing. Come on. Make good on your pledge. Do what you've already committed to do. So if you're not giving at least 10%, let me encourage you to begin increasing your giving soon. Again, as a response to the grace and love of God toward, and, and work toward a 10%. Minimum. Where should you give? Well, that's the focus of the last point. We're called to give to the Lord's work and then to trust Him to use the money as He will. The order of Mark 11 and 12 is instructive. Jesus has already passed judgment on the temple structure. He said it's not going to exist, it's not going to be there much longer. And then He commended the lady for contributing to the temple. To be more specific, she contributed to the Lord in his work through giving to the temple. When you direct all of your funds so that you can have control over where your money goes, it's difficult to see how Scripture would affirm that as giving by faith. Now, look, we are absolutely responsible to use our resources wisely. And, and, and just in the same way you wouldn't keep pouring money into a bad investment, you don't want to pour money into, into organizations, to churches, to ministries that are not promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
But this woman gave to the, to the temple even though that structure, that day was done. Allison and I give in several directions outside of grace. But if we ever give designated funds to anybody or at the church when we call for designated uh, accounts, it's over and above the regular giving that we do based on our salaries. And I don't do that in, in any way other than to say, I promise you, I practice what I preach. We practice what I'm preaching. So I'm not asking you to do something that I'm unwilling to do. If you cannot trust the church you are in to disperse the funds for God's glory and for the gospel to go forth, whether it's this church or any other church, I would strongly suggest that you find a gospel-believing, Christ-honoring church where you can give your money with full confidence that it's going to be used for the Lord. And then just let it go. Just say, God is going to take care of this. And I hope you will give over and above your regular giving to support missionaries, special offerings within the church, like the benevolence or the building fund. But look, if you're giving your tithe to the benevolence offering, please stop. I I appreciate that heart. But it's a matter of faith. Let your tithe go to the church. And then give over and above that as God allows you to respond in gratitude and in grace to the Lord. Well, today we come, as we do every first Sunday of the month, to this table that reminds us of why we give in the first place. And again, look... I know this may have sounded right at the very end, like this is a hard sell and this is pointed and pushing me to do this, do that. No, I'm saying, as the scripture says, let us give to the Lord in response to what he has given to us. And we come to this table to be reminded of what he has given to us. Jesus did not give 10% when he came and when he went to the cross. He gave everything that he had. We're reminded of Jesus' deep love for his disciples as he prepared to face the cross and as he instituted this supper uh, in these words from Luke 22. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you that I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Can you imagine the deep love that he had for his disciples when he said that? And likewise the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Father, as we today partake, we recognize that we participate
We commune with you. And we commune with one another. At a level. That is designated by you to be special. This is not something we just do. In fact. This is more what you do for us than what we do for you. We pray that our hearts would be nourished by this meal. That we would recognize your great love and grace. And in deep gratitude respond to you with our worship. Not only with our words, not only with our hearts, with our actions. Ways that we treat one another, the body of Christ. Ways that we serve you and one another. The ways that we give to you and to one another. May we do so in response to your great love. Father, your great plan, your great sacrifice, Jesus. Thank you, Spirit, for helping it to make sense in our lives and to bringing us into life through Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. A reminder from both Numbers and Philippians. Number six, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and give, be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.